spiritual armor. Most Christians are familiar with the concept, but we're a bit shaky on knowing how to use that armor effectively. Well, coming up, a close-up look at the armor and weapons of Bible times, plus insights on how you and I can use the armor that God has provided for us. Stick around for the land and the book. It's the one-hour flyover of the Middle East that makes you feel like you're really, truly there. (laughs) Minus the uh, plane ticket and passport, of course. I'm John Geiger saying hello to our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, a noted Israel scholar. Charlie, this talk about armor and weapons takes me to our November trip to Israel. While there, we stopped at the Israel Museum where we snapped a picture or two of some stones used with slingshots. Fascinating. Oh, they are, John. You know, sling stones. They also have a, a Roman sword and a Roman helmet there. I can't wait to get back. In about three weeks, I'm going to be heading back that way. And I always make a stop at the Israel Museum to see all those pieces. And you always do a great job of bringing us photos and videos from those trips. So thanks for doing that. All right, let's take a look at current events, the stories that have been unfolding this past week in the Middle East. One of the top news items within Israel the past two weeks involved reports of on-again, off-again plea bargain negotiations between former Prime Minister Netanyahu and the retiring Attorney General. What exactly has been going on? Oh, yeah. The trial of former Prime Minister Netanyahu is incredibly complex. It's expected to drag on for years, costing Netanyahu and the state of Israel time and money. In the meantime, Netanyahu heads the opposition in the Knesset and has a large base of loyal followers who believe he was forced from office by a combination of overzealous prosecutors and liberal media, along with an activist judiciary. The other side's actually afraid that should the current coalition fail before the trial's over, Netanyahu could return to power and push through legislation to derail the trial and change the way the government functions. Now, multiple versions of what has been negotiated were leaked, but we do know Netanyahu's lawyers and Attorney General Mandelblit were trying to reach a deal before Mandelblit's term of office ends at the end of this month. The deal being hammered out would have dropped most of the charges and had Netanyahu plead guilty to the remaining lesser charges of fraud and breach of trust. He would then have been sentenced to community service rather than prison. Now, the sticking point was over whether he had to admit that his actions involved, quote, moral turpitude, which would bar him from holding office for up to seven years, effectively ending his political career. It appeared initially that the two sides were getting close to an agreement, but then the negotiations were leaked to the press. Those in the prosecutor's office were enraged and started putting pressure on Mandelblit to push for a tougher deal. Netanyahu's family felt the initial offer was a trap to get him to admit to some level of guilt before pulling back the offer and then eroding his chances in court. And the change seems to confirm their suspicions. Now, at that point, the deal collapsed. Netanyahu issued a statement last Sunday saying he hadn't agreed to acknowledge moral turpitude and that he had no intention of leaving politics. Right now, that means there is no deal, nor are there any ongoing negotiations. However, Once a new attorney general is appointed, it seems likely that some sort of quiet negotiations will begin again because it's in the interests of both sides to avoid this long trial. You're listening to The Land and the Book, and if you're a regular listener, you know Charlie's voice isn't quite up to par. He's getting over a cold, and uh, we're going to give him grace there. In an era of growing environmental consciousness, it seems everyone would be in favor of planting trees, but in Israel... Recent tree planting caused riots and threatened to bring down the government. Why such controversy over planting trees? Yeah, this can only happen in Israel. A century ago, much of the land was just barren, rock-covered hills. 
For decades, groups have been planting trees to help reforest the country. Each year on Tu Bishvat, which is the Jewish holiday celebrating trees and plants, thousands of families attend planting ceremonies. But this year, it had a definite twist. Bedouin demonstrators claimed the planting program was a land grab and, quote, environmental colonialism, the Judaization of Arab-owned land. And as a result, there were riots in southern Israel. The Islamic Ra'am Party, which is part of the current coalition, vowed to stop voting with the coalition to protest the continued reforestation of the Negev region. Still others oppose the planting on environmental grounds because the trees used most often are the Aleppo pine, which they describe as an invasive species that makes it difficult for native plants to grow and that's more susceptible to fire. So let's sort through all the controversy. First, the Aleppo pine is not an invasive species, and it's grown in that region for thousands of years. Now, the charge of environmental colonialism is more complex. Israel has been planting trees throughout the country, not just in the Negev. And the reforestation is taking place on public land, not private property. However, the Bedouin have historically roamed throughout the Negev with their flocks and herds and even planted fields of wheat and barley wherever they wanted. So it's an overreach to claim the tree planting is an attempt to Judaize the land because the land has been recognized internationally as being part of Israel since the rebirth of the country back in 1948. It's state land, and the state can choose to reclaim it for forest land to help it recover from centuries of ecological mismanagement. Uh, The problem is similar to the controversy we've experienced in our country between Western ranchers and the federal government. There are times when national policy collides with the livelihood of those who live in a particular area, and the problems are complex, both here and in Israel. However, in this case, it doesn't help when inflammatory words like colonialism and Judaization are thrown into the debate. Uh, Let's hope the different sides can work out an arrangement that Mm -hmm. recognizes Israel's sovereignty over the land, while also taking into account the legitimate needs of the Bedouin who live in the area. It's the land and the book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Giger, working our way through a list of current event stories from the Middle East. Jerusalem again experienced protests over evictions in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. What's the issue behind this latest controversy? Yeah, much like the last story, the answer lies in the eye of the beholder. An Arab-owned business had been illegally constructed on public property in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. The police went through the courts to have the business and the family who lived there evicted, and the courts finally approved. The family then threatened to burn themselves to death if Israel tried to evict them, creating a media circus. Now, Israel was eventually able to evict the family and destroy the building, but then they were condemned by many European countries for supposedly conducting illegal evictions under international law. The problem is the building hadn't stood on the land for decades. It was an illegal land grab by this family on public property that had been set aside to build an educational complex for the Arab residents of the area, including a school for special needs children, as well as other preschool classrooms and sports fields. The news media reported the false claims of the individuals who said the land was being taken to give to Jewish families. Now, that charge relates to an entirely different property issue in that same general neighborhood, but it's not the same property or the same issue. Instead of checking their facts, the media incorrectly reported the claims of the residents as if they were statements of truth. The entire story, John, is a reminder not to always believe what you first hear or read in the media. 
Uh, this is when we need to heed the words of Solomon in Proverbs eighteen seventeen. The first to present his case seems right hmm. till another comes forward and questions him. Rain, wind, snow, and the occasional earthquake, but with a decreasing chance of Omicron. Help us understand the latest forecast out of Israel, Charlie. Yeah, you know, with all these other stories grabbing all the headlines, uh, we, we sometimes forget there are other significant things happening in that tiny country. So here are some of those other stories very quickly that people might have missed. After a slow start to the rainy season, Israel's been catching up with a string of weather fronts moving through, bringing much-needed rain and even snow on Mount Hermon and the higher elevations. Uh, The storms brought Israel back on target in terms of year-to-date expected rainfall. So what we need to hope now is that that rain will continue for the rest of the rainy season. Uh, The Sea of Galilee continues to rise. It's now just over five feet below the upper red line, which is its maximum capacity. Uh, Israel also experienced two relatively minor earthquakes last weekend within hours of each other. Both were located near the Sea of Galilee, and there were no reports of injuries or major damage, but they were a sober reminder that Israel is an earthquake-prone region. Now, those two quakes followed a larger one off the coast of Cyprus earlier in the month. And the good news on the horizon is that Israeli experts believe the country has now reached the peak of the Omicron wave of COVID and will begin seeing a rapid decrease in new daily infections, actually starting, they believe, this coming week. They're not out of the woods by any means, but they hope that the decline will signal the light at the end of the tunnel. Now, they passed a law this past week effectively ending the state of emergency that has existed since the beginning of the pandemic. And John, that's the latest forecast from meteorology to seismology to epidemiology coming out of Israel right now. Charlie, real quick, was there any damage to buildings, roads, or other infrastructure in any of those earthquakes? Uh, No damage to roads that we saw. There were a few cracks that appeared in some buildings. Uh, Things were knocked off the shelves, but otherwise they were pretty minor. Uh, The big fear was that it's just a foretaste of what will come at some point in the future. Our website is thelandandthebook.org, and if you've never been there, we encourage you to visit for summaries of previous programs. You can always hear the audio of a past program. Maybe it's a a guest that you really wish you'd heard. That's all there, along with, of course, Charlie's answers to your questions. That's a segment coming up, but we do it every week, and you can hear past programs at thelandandthebook.org. And why not share that podcast with a friend? Up next, put your armor on here on The Land and the Book. spiritual armor. Most Christians are familiar with the concept, but we're a bit shaky when it comes to knowing confidently how to use that armor. If you're a bit fuzzy here, we're about to bring some clarity to the picture. Welcome to segment two of The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and before we launch into our discussion on spiritual armor, let's engage this brief conversation about reaching out to our Jewish friends with the love of Christ. There are so many ways that we as followers of Yeshua can share him with our Jewish friends. Michelle Gold is with Shalom Revolution and suggests one tool might be sharing a book. But Michelle, what kind of book? There are so many books out there. Are there Mm -hmm. any that you might recommend uh, we could give to a a non-believing or possibly seeking Jewish friend? Absolutely. Well, you know, a lot of people who are closed-minded to the gospel, they'll receive a book from you. And maybe even when they're in a bad mood or something, they'll take the book out and read it and consider that maybe Yeshua, Jesus, is the Messiah. 
Messiah. Um, one really awesome book that I've heard has made a big difference is called um, Jewish Doctors Meet the Great Physician. I actually gave one to my doctor and Did then you? had a visit, follow up visit where I was so afraid, but I mustered up the courage to say, hey, what'd you think? Well, what did he um, think? <laughs> what did he think? And you know what? I think he was just, he, he, he said, oh, it's very good. It's very good. It's uh. interesting. And I could tell he was really considering the Lord in his life. Mm. And, you know, I need to follow up with that guy. I haven't talked to him in ages and see, maybe he's come to believe you since then. You need to get then. a cold or something you so know? you have a reason to go in and, and but, follow up there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, you know, similarly, I had a devotional that someone kept leaving at my doorstep that I was reading that really made me consider Jesus in my life. Um, also, JewsForJesus.org has some great testimonial books and even Chosen People's website, and I'm sure Moody too, has testimonial booklets. Um, in fact, I'm actually writing my testimony now, and uh, it's going to be called Who Will Go? Okay. And I'll be releasing that. If you know any little Jewish girls from Brooklyn that you want to share it with, or not so little Jewish girls from Brooklyn, it'll be my story and how I came to faith um, after being disowned you know, by my parents, how I decided that he is the Messiah when he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He meant it. Uh, and of course, the greatest book of all to share is the Bible. Huh. Get somebody an easy version and give it to them because a lot of Jewish people have no idea that there's an easy version of the Bible. I never knew it. I thought it was all these and thous. Sharing Amazing. Yeshua by sharing a book. <laughs> One thought there from Michelle Gold. Learn more at michellegold.com. Many people are squeamish about the idea of spiritual warfare, and we kind of resist even talking about it. But the scripture says, like it or not, we are in a battle. We don't have to invite it. It's already upon us. Well, let's talk with Dr. Fred Dickison, a national authority on the issue of spiritual warfare, the former chairman of the theology department at Moody Bible Institute. He's written many books on the spirit world, including the Moody Publishers classic, Angels, Elect and Evil. We've asked him to bring some focus to this discussion on spiritual warfare. So as I welcome Dr. Dickinson back to the land and the book, let me ask, why does the reality of spiritual warfare going on all around us escape so many? The first answer is the ignorance of spiritual warfare as presented in the Bible. What the Bible says is quite clear. The other reason would be the matter of fear. People fear the spirit world, and uh, so they neglect it. When Ephesians 6 was written, the, uh, the weapons were familiar to their readers. If you go to the Israel Museum, as many of our listeners have, you can see their weapons on display. I remember looking at a, at a pyramid pile of, uh, of stones that were used in slingshots. They've got shields there, helmets there. Fascinating to look at all that. But warfare of any kind is a sobering thing. And our natural instinct, at least mine, is to be frightened. Why shouldn't Christians be afraid? The books of Ephesians and Colossians were written to people who are afraid of the spirit world. And the books tell us that Christ, the creator of all things, is the controller of all things. And he is far above all those wicked spirits. And he's the one that we can trust to take care of our needs. Dr. Fred Dickinson is a noted expert on spiritual warfare and the author of many books, including Winning the War Through Prayer. It's one I'm reading right now. In Ephesians 6, the Word of God lists six pieces of armor, and you've suggested that three of these pieces are ours positionally, meaning they already are functioning the moment we receive Christ. What are those three, and, and what do we mean by positionally? Position is that standing we have before God the very moment we trust Christ as our Savior. And so these uh, pieces reflect that. For instance, the 
Uh, first piece is the belt of truth. This is a wide belt that gave support to the back in the middle of the battle. It is also the belt on which the short sword was hung. But the truth that we have is the truth in Christ, the truth system. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And uh, we don't need to seek the truth in other religious or philosophical system. Yeah, no question. That truth is settled. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. So we've got the belt of truth. Another positional piece of armor would be? The breastplate of righteousness. This was something that covered the thorax that protected the soldier from being hit in his vital parts. It was either a solid shield or it was made up of metal coins that covered his uh, thorax. It was uh, something that uh, granted him real sense of peace that he would not be slain in the battle. We have the righteousness of God as our shield. This is the righteousness that comes from God because he imputes to us the righteousness of Christ, and then he pronounces, you are free from any sin, any condemnation. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The famous Ephesians 6 passage goes on to talk about feet, The King James translation is feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What in the world is that talking about? And let's talk about the importance of what the soldier in in Paul's day was wearing in battle. Yes, he was wearing hobnail shoes. That is, um, his sandals had hobnails driven through them so he wouldn't slip in the middle of battle. You don't want to, with your heavy sword and heavy shield, slip and fall. So these were secure pieces of armor. When I played golf, I played with spikes. That is to keep sure footing. And this gospel of peace gives us peace in the midst of the battle. All right, let's talk about the three pieces of armor that are not positional, meaning they are ours to use or not use. Let's start with the idea of the shield of faith. What should we note here about this shield? Well, the shield is actually a confidence in the true and the living God. Uh, It is good to know as much as we can from the Scripture about the character and power of God. The shield not only defended the individual soldier, but they were door-side shields that sometimes were put together in front and overhead to look like a tank going into battle. So you're saying a group of soldiers would link together these shields in a row in front of them, but also above them and, and to the sides and behind them. That was so, yes, because the enemy would shoot flaming arrows, hoping that that would uh, break through and cause some stumbling and breaking up of the phalanx. So uh, what about the power of this shield of faith of ours? How does that respond to the flaming arrows that we are promised are being targeted, shot our way, launched in our direction? What, What do we do with this shield of faith? How do we use it? Well, the type of thing that he often aims at us is, you are a sinner, Uh, What makes you think that God loves you? What makes you think that you're strong enough to stand in this battle against me, the uh, vicious warrior? And the shield of confidence says, God is for me. No one can be successfully against me. And so we raise the shield of confidence in God that he will keep us safe in the battle. Now, you're touching on something that's very, very important here. I find in my own walk that I am uh, attacked, if you will, at this very point of confidence, I I see my own doubts and things creep in, and this shield of faith needs to have an active role in my own defense, as it does, I suppose, in the life of every listener, the shield of faith. The Scripture tells us that they that know who you are, put their confidence in you, and they are safe. 
so we can put our confidence in the true and living God who is for us. No one could be against him. Today on The Land and the Book, we're talking with Dr. Fred Dickison, a leading authority on spiritual warfare. He's written Dangers of the Spirit World, among other books. I read that one cover to cover. There is a a listener right now, I guarantee, who is sensing this attack of, of doubt and and maybe the very fundamentals of their belief, their their faith is under attack. And, and they want to know, how can I appropriate this shield of faith? What does it look like? What's the response? What should they be saying or praying or doing to make this shield of faith effective? Knowing the truth of God's word gives us great confidence. We know that God is for us so that no one can be against us. We need to stand in the truth. And besides standing, we command the enemy in the authority of the Lord Jesus to depart and go where he sends them. We don't have to put up with this. So you would actually say that? First of all, I would say, I don't receive that lie. Wicked spirits, I know you are liars. I will not put up with that. I stand on God's truth, that I am a child of God, and I have his authority. Now you get out of here in Jesus' name. That's bold praying. Yes, boldness is what we need. Let's talk about the helmet of salvation next. Uh, A lot of us are under the impression this speaks to our secure knowledge of our salvation, but you suggest we might be off a little bit. He's already covered the matter of our secure salvation by the breastplate of righteousness. Paul is not repeating himself. He's talking about the helmet of deliverance. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it's the helmet of the hope of deliverance. I take it to mean that we need to remember that we're going to be victors in the battle, We're on the winning side. We may lose a few skirmishes, but we will win overall. So ultimate triumph, ultimate victory is guaranteed at the start. That's correct. That's because God is for us and he set this all up. All right. So knowing that we have this helmet of salvation and knowing that it points to deliverance, how does that affect how I do or think or pray? We need to keep a positive attitude. God and you are a majority and God is for you and he will help you through the battle. And of course, finally, there's the sword of the Spirit. Somebody has pointed out that's the only offensive weapon that we're given. What do we need to know about the sword of the Spirit, and how do we use it? We can use the sword of the Spirit, which is the sayings of the Word of God. The word here is rhema, which means the sayings of the Word of God. Just like the Lord Jesus used the sayings of the Word of God, Satan said, turn these stones into bread, since you're the Son of God. Jesus answered very adroitly, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So also with cast yourself down, show yourself to be the Messiah. I will not put God to the test. He takes the place of a man under the law and obeys what God has said. You shall not test the Lord your God. All right, so is it fair to say, just let me keep it real simple here, that we sometimes answer these voices, these doubts, these thoughts with pure, raw scripture? Yes, scripture that is effective because it's pointed, it's deliberate, it is fitting for the occasion, and uh, it is practiced in our lives. It seems to me that given the force that this weapon carries, memorizing scripture is not just a nice option for the committed few, but really it's a way of survival. Am I being overly dramatic? Yes, scripture not only helps us to grow and uh, to stand, but also it's our offensive weapon. We need to know the Word of God. 
spiritual weapons and how to use them. That's our focus today on the land and the book as our conversation continues with Dr. Fred Dickison for many years on the faculty of Moody Bible Institute. All right, the question that has dogged so many of us for years is exactly how do we put on this armor? We're told, put on not just the armor, but the whole armor of God. How do we do that on a daily basis? It's morning, I wake up, and how do I put on that armor? Well, I talk to God in prayer when this happens. I think we need to know that our positional armor is something we can count on, just like Romans chapter 6 says, count yourself dead indeed to sin, alive unto God, present your body to Christ. And uh, we do the same here. We count these positional pieces to be on. That is the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and the feet that stand in peace before God. Thank you, Lord, that these are mine today, and I will stand in them. And as for the sword of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, we activate those on a daily basis. How? Well, we recognize, first of all, that they're supplied for us. And uh, we know that they are available, so we actually pick up the shield of confidence in God. Lord, I'm confident in you. And I will use your word in appropriate fashion today. Help me to do that. What book of yours particularly would you recommend for someone who'd like to dig just a bit deeper on this issue of spiritual armor? The book, Winning the War Through Prayer, is available on Amazon. The first part of it deals with the place of prayer in warfare, and the second part has practical pattern prayers for many different occasions, personal growth and uh, ministry and all that. All right, a link to that book at our website, thelandandthebook.org. As always, our time has gone too quickly with Dr. Fred Dickison. Thank you for stopping by. Appreciate your visit today, talking about spiritual armor here on The Land and the Book. Thank you for letting me uh, share this truth with you. Up next, Charlie Dyer is back, and I hope you'll stick around for his take on some great questions that are coming our way here on The Land and the Book. The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger. So glad you've decided to hang with us as we turn the page now to segment three with our host, Charlie Dyer, answering questions that have come in via email. Charlie, this is not an easy question we're starting with today. Uh, It is not, John. It's really one of the disturbing questions, but it was asked in honesty, and we're going to try and give an honest answer for it. That question comes from Terry, who says, a friend was visiting and asked me why it's wrong if a homosexual person loves someone of their same gender, why that is wrong? Or why would God be against that? I trust God to guide us for what is best for our lives and told her that we aren't here to judge others, but to love people and be a good witness to everyone. Can you give me a concise answer for her question? Hey, thanks for the land and the book. It's my favorite podcast. Yeah, concise is kind of tough, but I can try and give an answer that looks at the larger issue. Uh, There are times when our perception of what's right or best or proper seems to contradict what God has said in his word. And in those times, we need to remember that since God created the universe, he also knows best how it's to operate. And what appears to be restrictions are ultimately for our benefit, even though they might at times seem harsh. Uh, Here's an example of what I mean. Let me take it back to the creation of humanity. When God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave them free access to everything, but he told them, you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat of it, you'll surely die. Well, unfortunately, the serpent then convinced Eve that that restriction was unjust, that disobeying and eating would make her like God, knowing good and evil. 
uh, the serpent's words matched her own perception. In fact, the Bible says she looked at it and said, well, it looks good for food. It's pleasing to the eye. It's desirable to gain wisdom. So she took and ate and gave to Adam and he ate. Now, unfortunately, they discovered that the decision came with awful consequences, spiritual and physical death and separation from God and removal from the Garden of Eden. My point here is God understands us far better than we understand ourselves. Uh, We often see what's pleasing to the eye, but God understands the impact it can have on our soul. And that's why God places fences around some activities, especially those that generate such strong biochemical reactions within us. God has said homosexuality is wrong. Uh, You can go to Leviticus 18.22. You can go to Romans chapter 1. But he also condemns sexual relations between men and women outside of marriage. Mm -hmm. He condemns bestiality and rape and adultery and a host of other sexual practices. It's not just homosexuality. Uh, In Leviticus 18, God began his list of sexual prohibitions by saying, You must obey my law and be careful to follow my decrees. I'm the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. I'm the Lord. In other words, he says, the the process of knowing what's right and wrong sexually begins with acknowledging that God and his word are to be preeminent. Now, in the case of sexual immorality, God does offer some explanations. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul wrote, flee from sexual immorality. All sins a man commits are outside his body, but He who sins sexually sins against his own body. That is, sexual immorality of all types, not just homosexuality, has a profound personal impact on an individual. And since for believers, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul reminds us our body really does belong to God. Now, one last point. The argument that if someone loves someone else, even of the same gender, that should somehow be sufficient to make the act right. But what if a pedophile genuinely loves a little girl? Or if a man falls in love with a woman at work who isn't his wife. You know, emotions can deceive, and only the Creator gets to define when those emotions are out of bounds. Uh, we can deceive ourselves to justify actions, but ultimately, it's the Lord who sets the standards, and He does so in part because He knows the terrible consequences that will come on those who choose to disobey. Now, this is a very polarizing subject in our day, but I hope this is helpful. Ava says in Numbers 31, verses 17 and 18, it reads, Now therefore kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. But all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. Now what exactly does it mean by young girls? I assume it means young girls of marriageable age who are not married yet, but some people say it implies pedophilia. What does the Hebrew wording imply, and how would you respond to those who claim it means that there was pedophilia taking place that was actually sanctioned by God? Well, the word that's used for young girls in the passage has the idea of female children. Uh, The context defines them as individuals who have not known man intimately. That would suggest they're preteen or very young teen girls, since often uh, children were married off at a fairly young age. Now, I don't see this, though, as an example of pedophilia. Uh, The larger context relates these verses to God's judgment on the Midianite people for their role in causing Israel to sin. Uh, In his judgment, God vowed to wipe out completely the Midianites as a people. And after the battle, Moses was angry when the people had allowed the women to remain alive. Any woman who was old enough to have had sexual relations could potentially be pregnant and give birth to the nation God wanted judged. Uh, Moses then permits those who had not had sexual relations to live and become part of the nation of Israel. Rather than pedophilia, I think this is a case of God, through Moses, extending mercy 
in the midst of God's judgment on the Midianites by sparing these young women. This is an interesting question about purgatory. She says, uh, I have a friend that is a Catholic. She sent me some videos about people talking about purgatory. I know the Bible does not say anything about purgatory. My questions, one, where did the Catholic Church get this doctrine? Two, if the Bible says anything about purgatory, where can I find that? And here are the verses that they use to prove the point. Uh, they got four listings here. Revelation 21, 25 through 27, 1 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15, 1 John 5, 17 and 18, and finally Luke 12, 58 to 59. Charlie, what about purgatory? Yeah, we're going to cover this waterfront pretty quickly, hopefully. Uh, Well, the Roman Catholic concept of purgatory comes, I think, in part from 2 Maccabees 12. In the passage there, Judas Maccabeus takes up a collection to send to Jerusalem to provide a sin offering for those who'd sinned and died. And the passage ends by saying, Judas made provision for a sin offering to set free from their sin those who had died, suggesting that the actions on the part of the living could somehow impact the outcome for those who've already died. Now, most Protestants, and I include myself here, we don't believe Second Maccabees is or ought to be part of the canonical Bible. That's why I don't believe in purgatory. I think Hebrews 9.27 speaks clearly to the reality that our only opportunity to repent and receive forgiveness and settle our eternal destiny occurs before death, not afterward. You know, man's destined to die and after that to face judgment. Now, the passages, though, uh, like 1 Corinthians 3, well, it speaks to the reality that believers will stand before God to give an account of what they've done for Christ here on earth. But in verses 14 and 15, Paul says, if what they've built survives, he'll receive a reward. If it's burned up, he'll suffer loss, but he'll be saved, but as one escaping from the flames. Now, those who've been faithful are going to be rewarded for faithfulness, while those who have not will suffer loss of reward. But Paul makes it clear that he's not talking about their spiritual condition. Uh, they're going to be saved and in heaven but without the eternal rewards that they could otherwise receive for faithfulness. You know, purgatory, though, isn't in view here. Uh, What's in the flames are the works that were done, not the people who did them. Uh, In the 1 John 5 passage, it talks about a sin that leads to death. Well, John's referring there to physical death, not purgatory. That is, the things people do here on earth can cause God to take their life physically. One example of this, uh, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira were killed physically for lying to the apostles. Another example in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, some people in Corinth were getting drunk during their celebration of the Lord's table, and God judged them for their actions. And in fact, Paul says that's why many are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That is, they'd physically been put to death. Now, the Luke 12 passage where Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience, including Pharisees and other religious leaders, and in verse 56, he calls them hypocrites. They claim to be righteous, but their actions showed their disbelief. And his point is they're going to be judged for their inability to discern and judge what's truly right in God's sight. I believe those individuals weren't believers. They were unbelievers. And Revelation 21, the last passage, uh, speaks about the purity of the new Jerusalem. Nothing unclean will enter it. And that's true. All believers will be fully cleansed. As John said in 1 John 3, 2, when Jesus appears, we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. We'll be pure and allowed into the new Jerusalem when we receive those new bodies we get at the rapture. An email here from Lorna. She says, the leader of my Bible study group indicated that Abraham was originally a Gentile. I thought he was always Jewish. Genesis 14, 13 referred to Abram as Abram the Hebrew. Therefore, I assumed that as part of God's chosen people, he was always Jewish. If Abraham was originally a Gentile, when did he become Jewish? Well, here's the basic answer. Uh, The nation of Israel came from Abraham, 
but it was Abraham's grandson, Jacob, whom God renamed as Israel. Uh, It was Jacob's 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Abraham was actually from the line of Noah's son, Shem. Uh, In Genesis 14, the term Hebrew that's used there could come from the Semitic word for across in the sense of being from across the river. That is, Abraham was known by the locals as someone who came from the east of the Jordan River. And since he did come from Mesopotamia, well, that name makes sense. But anyway, the bottom line is the Jewish people came from Abraham through his sons, Isaac and Jacob. Uh, The Arab tribes also came from Abraham through his son, Ishmael. So the Jewish people are descendants of Abraham, but it's technically incorrect to say Abraham was Jewish since he lived before the birth of the 12 sons and the eventual growing of those sons into the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, we have certainly covered a lot of ground today. Maybe you'd like to hear it again or share this entire program with a friend. We've made it easy to do that with our podcast. You'll find it at the website, thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. And we encourage you to share us with your friends. Let's not keep this to ourselves, huh? And uh, your email, by the way, is always welcome. If you've got a question, send it to us, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. You don't want to miss Charlie's devotional. It's straight ahead right here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. So, what's your favorite cookie? I've always liked fig newtons. You like fig newtons? Do you like figs at all as a fruit, maybe as a dessert? If you go to Middle Eastern restaurants, they often serve figs. Figs play a major role in the Bible. You remember the story of the fig tree that Christ cursed. Well, Charlie Dyer's devotional is focused on figs. We'll get to that first, though, this Holy Land experience here on The Land and the Book. Hi, uh, my name is Lou Barbieri. I'm a retired professor in the Department of Theology at Moody Bible Institute. And I've had the privilege of going to Israel on 12 different occasions. And every time I have gone, I have seen something I didn't see before and I've learned something that I didn't learn before. The greatest impact that uh, I think going to Israel has on your life is it enables you to see the locations where all of these wonderful biblical stories occurred. And you just can't get that by looking at pictures or looking at somebody's slides who has been there. You need to stand uh, at Megiddo for yourself and look out over the uh, valley of Megiddo and realize that that's the place where the final battles of the world are going to take place. You need to stand on the Sea of Galilee and watch the sun go up or go down and realize that Jesus saw the same thing you did. Uh, You need to stand at the Mount of Olives and look over at the beautiful city of Jerusalem today and realize that, you know, 2,000 years ago, some incredibly important things happened here. And they have changed our lives because it's through that that Jesus Christ has shed his blood and died for us on the cross. And it all happened right there in that location. And there's nothing like seeing it for yourself the very first time. Thanks very much for that Holy Land experience. We're headed now to Mark chapter 11. Charlie, we'll hand things over to you. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses described the promised land as a land of wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey. And today our visit takes us to one of the most misunderstood fig trees in the Bible. It's growing on the Mount of Olives, or at least it was growing there until Jesus passed by. During most of his final week in Jerusalem, Jesus spent his nights at Bethany, at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. According to the Apostle John, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. The walk from Bethany to Jerusalem was a test of one's calf muscles, because the Mount of Olives is very steep. 
Near the top of the hill was a small village named Bethpage, or Beit Pagay, which means house of the unripe figs, or house of the green figs. The word Pagay is used only one other time in the Old Testament, in Song of Solomon 2.13, where the writer describes the coming spring. The fig tree forms its early fruit and the vines blossom. The word translated early fruit is Pagay. But why would a village be named the house of the unripe figs? To find the answer, we need to know something about figs and the Mount of Olives. The fig tree produces two crops of figs each year. The early figs develop in the spring while the main crop begins to develop about six weeks later during the summer. Normally, the leaves of the fig tree and the early figs begin to appear about the same time and that's the time of Passover, though the exact date can vary slightly from year to year. So why was this village named the House of Unripe Figs? It could possibly be related to its location on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is one of the highest hills in Judah. At over 2,600 feet, it towers above the other hills in the immediate area. And since air temperature decreases as altitude increases, plants on the top of the mountain will blossom and develop more slowly than those at the lower elevations. Perhaps this village, located at the summit of the mountain, got its name because its fig trees were some of the last in the area to ripen. Jesus was on the road from Bethany to Jerusalem when he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. Though Mark doesn't give the exact location, we can assume the tree was near Bethpage, since it was at a distance from Bethany along this road. The tree had already transformed itself from a stick figure of bare white branches into a canopy of emerald green leaves, and the leaves should have been accompanied by small green figs. But when Jesus searched among the branches, he found nothing but leaves. When Mark adds that it was not the season for figs, he's not implying that Jesus was wrong to look for them. He's simply noting it wasn't the time when one would expect to find the tree to be full of figs. In his book, Hard Sayings of the Bible, F.F. Bruce shared historical insight into the story by quoting a minister who lived in the land during the time of the British Mandate. Towards the end of March, the leaves begin to appear, and in about a week, the foliage coating is complete. Coincident with this, and sometimes even before, there appears quite a crop of small knobs, not the real figs, but a kind of early forerunner. They grow to the size of green almonds, in which condition they're eaten by peasants and others when hungry. It's these small early figs that Jesus expected to find on the tree. Jesus responded to the tree's barren condition by cursing it. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And on the following morning, as they passed by the spot, the disciples saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. In one day, the tree had gone from life to death, from green to brown. Skeptics have taken issue with this story. If Jesus was God, they claim, he should have known the tree didn't have any figs. Or if he was God, why didn't he simply create figs on the tree if he was hungry? But such objections miss the entire point of the account. Ultimately, Jesus intended this event to be a learning experience for the disciples. But what was the lesson he wanted them to learn? Some think the lesson was to teach that Israel was about to be replaced as God's covenant people because of their coming rejection of the Messiah. Like a fig tree and leaf, the Jewish people claimed to be God's fruitful followers, but they were about to be cursed because of their failure to bear the fruit of righteousness. But is this the lesson God intended? I believe the answer is no, and I say that for two reasons. 
First, Jesus tells his disciples the significance of the event, and his explanation has nothing to do with God's rejection of Israel. According to the biblical account, the point of the incident was to teach the disciples to have faith in God. Jesus used the sudden withering of the fig tree to illustrate what those who have faith can accomplish. The disciples were amazed that a fig tree could wither and die in a single day. Jesus responded by giving an even greater illustration of what faith can do. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted you. In his illustration, the mountain was the Mount of Olives, and the sea was the Dead Sea, that, though 15 miles away, is still visible from the top of the Mount of Olives. The point of the withered fig tree is to demonstrate what faith in God can accomplish. Now, there's a second reason I don't believe this event is a sign of God's rejection of Israel. Just a few days later, Jesus delivered the Olivet Discourse to his disciples as they walked back over the Mount of Olives. In that amazing prophecy, he announced he would return as king and that he would regather his people. And to remind them that the events could be near, he shared with them the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know summer is near. Even so, too, when you see these things happen, recognize that he is near right at the door. Jesus clearly stated God will fulfill his kingdom promises for the people of Israel. They have not been replaced. So what can we learn from the incident with the fig tree on the Mount of Olives? Well, let's begin with the lesson Jesus taught his disciples. Do you believe God's word? Do you have faith in the promises God has given to you in his word? Jesus said men and women of faith can trust God to do what they're not capable of doing themselves. God is saying he can and will move mountains in response to the prayers of faithful men and women. A fig tree shriveling up in a day is amazing, but it's nothing compared to the power God has made available to you, his child, through prayer. Oscar Eliasson had it right in the song he wrote many years ago. Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. He'll do for you what no other power can do. How do we know this is true? Just look at that withered fig tree. Thanks, Charlie. Great insight into a wonderful old story from the Bible. Well, if you haven't visited our Facebook page lately, you ought to give it a shot. Best way to visit our Facebook page is to head first to the website, thelandandthebook.org, and click on the Facebook icon. That's thelandandthebook.org, and click on the Facebook icon. Our thanks to our team here at The Land of the Book, Dan Anderson, our co-producer, Charlie Dyer, our host. I'm John Gager. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.